Hello, I'm Mark Foden. Welcome to The Clock and the Cat, a podcast of conversations about clocks and cats, obviously, but crucially about complexity. The Clock and the Cat explores the emerging science of complexity, ultimately to help you generate better ideas and make better decisions, whatever you're involved with. This is episode two. It's the very first Clock and the Cat conversation, and I'm really excited to have Daniel Thornton with me. But if you haven't listened to episode one, then please would you temporarily curb your eagerness, hit the pause button and go back. Episode one is an introduction to the podcast. It explains the clock and the cat thing, and it's only seven minutes long. Whilst you're off doing that, Daniel and I will have a cup of tea and a chat amongst ourselves. Welcome back. Before you listen to my discussion with Daniel, I should say he and I have talked about complexity a lot in the past. Reviewing the recording, it's clear we've presumed quite a lot of understanding about the topic that perhaps not everyone listening will have, i.e. some of it might not make sense. Hopefully you'll want to find out more for yourself, but just to help right now, I'll explain a few things in advance. Recapping on the first episode, it's really important to understand we use the term complexity in a very specific way. Complexity is a particular phenomenon in a system and not just something really complicated. During our conversation, we talk about the ideas of Ron and Ralph, two people well-known in the complexity field. Ron is Ron Heifetz. He's a Harvard professor known for his work on adaptive change. And he makes a distinction between technical change and adaptive change. Technical change is a sort of approach needed to make change in predominantly predictable situations. It's based on analysis, planning and methodical delivery. Adaptive change is needed for unpredictable situations where the approach is to support the emergence of a new order through social dialogue, collaborative learning and iterative delivery of new capability. If you listen to the first episode, you'll see this directly relates to the clock and the cat analogy. Technical change works for clocks and adaptive change for cats. Ralph is Ralph Stacey. He's a professor at the University of Hertfordshire and a specialist in the theory of organisations. He's a pioneer of applying the ideas of complexity that were originally developed in the natural sciences to the field of human interaction. His work on organisational change is important because he advocates a new way of thinking about management as an alternative to what he calls the dominant discourse – this dominant discourse is the taken-for-granted management thinking that begins with the early ideas of industrial-era scientific management and includes even the systems thinking and learning organisation approaches that have been business school staples until really quite recently. These ideas are absolutely central to the clock and the cat. If you did go back to episode one, welcome back. Let's get on with it. And as I said, I'm here with Daniel Thornton. Daniel studied PPE at Oxford and history at LSE. He's had a huge experience in central government. He worked in the Foreign Office, Parliament, the Treasury, DCLG, and has been a private secretary to the Prime Minister. Whoa. Since then, he's worked for Gavi, a charity promoting vaccination in low-income countries. He's been a programme director at the leading think tank, the Institute for Government, and he's currently the director for external relations at ARC, an educational charity that runs dozens of schools. I've known Daniel for a few years now. We've talked a lot about complexity and particularly how it's relevant to the public sector. I found my conversations with him hugely useful and I'm hoping that you'll find this one the same. So, Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much. OK, let's start by talking about where your first interest in complexity came from. So I was working at Gavi and Gavi is a network organisation. It sits at the centre of a, of a big network of, of organisations and people who work across developing countries trying to get kids immunised around the world. And I was introduced to somebody called Richard Pascal and uh, his associate, Martin Herman. We worked together for several months 
And through this, I came to get interested in complexity and to learn about it. And I found the approaches that they suggested worked very well in dealing with what had been pretty intractable problems. So what kind of things were they talking about? They were talking about the way that traditional approaches to change in organisations are about clever people sitting in a room analysing things and then rolling out solutions that they've developed particularly ineffective in an organisation as large and diverse or a network as large and diverse as Gavi. What they talked about was complexity and, and how uh, in, in networks like Gavi you can make change happen. How by developing solutions with people you can develop solutions that are, that are actually going to work rather than seeming like a good idea from head office. So, the, so the, the things you were talking about, complexity from the sort of human communication interaction point of view rather than analysing networks. Yes, that's right. So you yeah. didn't do any kind of complexity science type stuff? No, it was about people. One of the thinkers that we were, were interested in was Heifetz, who talked about adaptive challenges and technical challenges. I think we're seeing more and more, hearing more and more people talk about adaptive change and complexity but I don't think it's reached critical mass yet. I think that's right and it's also the case that I think complexity is is getting misused and and is being turned into just another tool for for kind of controlling people and and you know instrumentalizing them. Yeah so there's the the, the Ralph Stacey stuff about the dominant discourse about how as a manager you conceive of uh, you being responsible for a system and you can manage it and change it at will. Whereas, uh, and, and a lot of the, the management teaching for the last sort of 30, 40 years has been about doing that. Whereas with the new era of um, discussion about complexity, it's about taking a, a fundamentally different view as you being a person involved in the system and your behaviour and where you go about things being critical. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it, it was about not expecting to have a grand plan that would solve all of the problems that we, we faced and trying to make moves that led to small changes perhaps and also learning about the way things worked and what people thought of them rather than trying to fix everything at once. So th so this is a critical point for me, the not having the grand plan thing, because um, particularly having worked in the public sector, it's all about promising something in the future, describing it, um, getting votes for it, and then delivering it. So, And, and similarly, actually, in, in private sector organisations, people want to see a plan that they can, uh, a, a convincing business case, and put money against. But if you're not doing that, then it brings some, uh, I think, some fundamental problems. So did you have those problems in, in Gavi? What did the, the senior people in that organisation think about not having a grand plan? Yeah, I, th I think they were they were potentially attracted to what Richard Pascal was suggesting, but in so they were involved in the discussions. Yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I worked for the CEO, and, and he brought Ralph into the organisation. So um, he brought Richard Pascal into the organisation. Oh, right. Okay. So, uh, but I think it's hard for people to to kind of give up on the on the idea of a, a grand plan because you keep having to justify yourself to, to people who give you money or are otherwise in, in charge. So you keep having to say, and I think the CEO kept having to say to the board and I kept having to say to the board, this is our grand plan for fixing supply chains as it happened. Vaccine supply chains was the, was the issue. And if you didn't come up with a grand plan, people would say, well, what have you been doing with yourself? 
um, are you really serious about this and why haven't you organized this in in a traditional kind of PowerPoint that allows everybody to, to see very clearly in nice graphs and, and charts uh, what it is you're up to. So uh, you and the CEO were having to convince the board? I had to present to the board and get the proposal through the board and that did require, I mean, I think, it, 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 you know, you have to go a certain way towards traditional, you have, if you're yeah. trying to communicate with people, you've got to, you've got to know where they're at and talk in terms that they're going to understand. If you, if you arrive and say, I'm just going to tell you something completely different than, than anything you've ever heard before, and don't worry, it'll be fine, um, you may not get very far. So I think, regardless of, of your, of your views and your experience and of, of what works, it's often the case that you have you have to kind of compromise and say, at least this is my experience, perhaps it's just my disposition, you have to compromise and you have to say, well, this is the way I'm going to destri- describe what, what, what I'm up to, but I'm going to make this as sensitive to uh, how I think the world really works as I can. I think this is one of the sort of key issues, isn't it? It's ultimately you need to talk in terms of how you're going to travel rather than the destination. And people who are used to dealing with getting to destinations find it um, comfortable. And a lot of them who are in charge just won't pay for that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. And I think we see a lot of this in government. Yeah, and, and I think ultimately because Parliament doesn't necessarily trust government to get up, just get on, there is a requirement to kind of present plans to Parliament and, to, and for Parliament will sort of try and nail down what government does uh, in detail rather than giving government lots of latitude to do what it thinks best and you can understand why that dynamic exists but it does lead to some perverse effects that people spend their time pretending that they know what's going to happen in the future and coming up with these milestones and and all this other stuff. Yeah so I, I did hear someone speaking at a, a, a meeting the other day so a sen- senior person who was saying okay there's all this uncertainty but I have to talk to my people and they have to feel that they support the plan, that they believe in something. So how do I actually tell them? I can't explain the full theory of complexity and why you need not to describe the destination and you need to focus on the, on the, on the mode of travel. And I, I absolutely got what he was saying. And it's always going to be a hard thing. I mean, something we both know described it as being inconvenient. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, it is. But I think that I think it is possible to say, well, here are the things that we're reasonably clear about, and here are the things that we have no idea about, uh, and 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 I'd really like your help in in working out what we what we do on them. You know, because people want to sort of on the one hand they want to have some confidence in the people in charge if they if they're in an organisation, and on the other hand they they also want to be heard. So you've got to get that balance right, I think. If you say it's a complete free for all, then you know that's just. That's just let everybody decide everything, uh, you may lose people's confidence. So I think there's a balance to be struck. Yeah, but isn't it, isn't it the, the sort of way that you have you know, the conversation? Uh, it's important to be authentic. And not every, you know, we're in a, a really uncertain world. And, and actually, most of us can only guess at what the future looks like. And people know when you're pulling the wool. I mean, you might be able to persuade them sometimes that you've got some special knowledge that you know something because you're the leader and you, you've got a special privilege. or you. But actually, most, mostly it sticks out like a sore thumb that you don't know. And you, you'll make more progress by saying, oh, I really don't know here. What do, you, what do you think? But that isn't normally the way we carry on in. No, indeed. And I, and I think it may be a case of sometimes saying, what do you think? And it may also be a case of saying... 
well, and here are the things that we're going to start doing to learn about the environment that we're going to be operating in, and uh, and as we learn, we will we will adapt. And I think that's a that's a better message than oh, I've got no idea. Oh well, <laughs> yeah. So you might have some idea about some things you need to learn, and you can then go and do some experiments. And presumably, that's what you did in Gavi. Yes, exactly. We went and talk to people and engage them on the issues that they were facing on a daily basis. We had a very good cooperation in East Africa with the East Africa community that brought together vaccine supply chain managers from across East Africa. We brought them together, got them out of their daily uh, routines and they talked about the issues that they faced and we we worked on what could be done about them, what, what it was that Gavi could do, what needed to be solved by UN organisations or could be helped by UN organisations, what was in the hands of of governments and and how they might address those problems. And so did that turn into sort of hard projects that you could that you could do or was it about changing the your your tone in the policy discussions or or, or what how how did it actually crystallize? Yes, there were certainly some things that we could do at the level of Gavi. Uh, and I think this is one of the things about complexity and networks is it, it makes you sensitive to different levels you know what affects what so i think there were things that we could we could address at the at the gavi level to put us in better contact with uh, the reality of vaccine stock levels in in countries and then there were things that needed to be addressed at country level by the people who are managing the the supply chains in country and i think getting clear about which which category those things fell into was part of the exercise so you were involved in actually changing processes at country level to try and improve things. Well, that wasn't my job. My responsibility was to work in inside Gavi to get some things changed there in the in the Gavi Secretariat. But and in terms of countries, it was a question of working with folks to to identify the problems and then encouraging the organisations that were based in the country to work on those problems because you can't solve seventy countries' problems from thousands of miles away. I mean, did you have representatives in the country? Well, there were, there were representatives of the World Health Organization, for example, uh, or NGOs that were based in the country, or the national governments um, themselves, who, you know, where there were often people who were very motivated to address the issues. So somebody on, on the ground working in, I don't know where, a typical place would be? Kenya, for okay, example. So somebody working in Kenya, for example. What would someone working there notice between the way that you're working as a result of thinking about complexity, what will have changed? I hope the level of engagement that they felt in the problems and the honesty with which we spoke about what we were able to do and what other people were able to do. I don't want to suggest that you need to study complexity to be a be a sympathetic individual and to engage properly with people, or that studying complexity means that you necessarily will be. But I do think taking an interest in complexity encourages you to, to be more engaged with people in a better way and you know, recognise the limits of, of what you can do from a long way away or the top of an organisation or that you can do by funding somebody or you know, right. at a distance. So it's kind of about reprogramming yourself maybe to the, or changing the way you think and as a result of having that understanding of complexity, it means that you behave differently? Yes, although I think it's also the case that perhaps it's more you're more likely to act your way into a new way of thinking than you are to think your way into a new way of acting. So the thing to do is just to get on. Do something. Do some stuff yeah. and talk to some people face-to-face ideally, find out what's going on from their perspective and take it from there. That's one of the challenges that I've faced 
in a lot of situations, my, my instinct says, let's just try something, let's do something, let's not talk about it. But oftentimes the people that I work with are saying, well, we need to analyze this, we need to collect some information, we need to understand the situation, and then we'll be in a, a position of strength to act. And if you are genuinely in a complex situation, that just simply doesn't work because in order to understand a complex system, you have to change it, you have to poke it to get some information back from it. You can't just analyze it. And I, I think some, there are a lot of people who are completely wired that way to any kind of problem is that you analyze it, work out what to do and act in a deliberate manner. Yeah, and I think one of the problems is people like to imagine that there are clock problems or technical challenges in Heifetz's terms because it gives them a feeling of control and reduces anxiety and helps with all that inside organisations. But in fact, as you say, the problems are often cat or adaptive problems. If you pretend that they're clock when they're not, you don't get very far. Now, if you listen to episode one, I talked about the difference between the Olympic and universal credit. And whilst I, I wasn't closely involved with universal credit, my instinct was that we went through this sort of analytical process of analysing the social problems. And, you know, a lot of research was done by a lot of extremely good people. Then that was brought down to the designing of a big piece of, of technology. And that's where the seeds of the, of the problem were. We didn't, we tried to hold, create a solution for the whole thing and then start delivering it rather than looking at the problems at a local level and, and then solving them. Uh, yeah, I think I mean, if, if Universal Credit started, started with a manual test of what was needed in several job centres and they'd learnt what the processes were, that rather than trying to build any, any technology, I think that would have been helpful. But they, they tried to do everything in parallel, getting the legislation, the technology. It was just too big and too complex. So I think... Particularly with government things, legislation is a problem because it takes a long time to do and you, you think oh, we've got to get that programmed into the to get into to Parliament and it's got to be done by the by next summer or it won't be done at all. Mm. And so you've got that pragmatic problem of getting some legislation in place. But it might not be the right legislation because you do some experimenting and you find, oh my gosh, no, we need to do this completely differently, which means we need different law. What prospect have we got for, for, for getting over that problem? Well, it doesn't seem like there's current political environment. There's a lot of trust between Parliament and the executive. So we should say that we're recording this on the second day of the parliamentary debate about Brexit. But we're not going to talk about Brexit. And a couple of days after the government has been declared in contempt of Parliament. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, it doesn't seem seem like the, the, the moment is, is ripe for a, a burst of um, Parliament handing over lots of authority to government. But I think... The climate of, of discussion between government and parliament could improve, and I, and I have seen it improve in, in some, some areas. And I think part of it you see in, in how people handle select committees. You know, a wise person presenting to a select committee says, these are some of the problems that we've been grappling with, and, and here's what we've been trying to do to, to address them. Whereas it, it usually starts with a, we're going to batten down the hatches and, and just try and avoid any criticism or any uh, hint that we, anything might have gone wrong. And that just leads to lack of trust. And, uh, you know, and a... do, you know, do you know anything about what's going on in Finland? Because I've got this hazy idea that they've got some legal mechanism in place in order to 
let them experiment with new legislation. Are you? Have you come across I haven't this? Come across that no, now. I must take a look and find. I'll, I'll find out more about this, and maybe we can get someone to come and talk about it in a later in a later episode. Wouldn't it be cool if you could actually create a bubble in which you could have a different set of laws in order to experiment with something? But I think there's, there is quite a lot of discretion for, for secretaries of state and departments. Uh, Secretary of state doesn't have to announce that they've found the solution to a problem. They can announce that they're, they recognise a problem and they're going to investigate and find ways of addressing the problem or do the investigating first and the announcing a bit later. So you're thinking that if we did want to operate in a complexity-friendly way, for the want of a better expression, we probably could do it if people understood it and were willing to do it. There wouldn't be anything fundamental in the sort of legal machinery that would stop us from, from doing that kind of thing. Well, I think complexity encourages you to work in ways that build trust and but also depend on trust. So I think it, it's quite hard to, to leap into a situation if there's little trust in a political environment where you're suddenly going to do lots of experiments and learn about things. You, the likelihood is you're going to carry on with a sort of grand kind of gestures and, and, and sweeping generalisations because that's what people imagine that people want. And it seems to, to kind of suggest that the, the minister concerned is, is powerful and, and has the answers and so on. Whereas I think if you speak to people properly and, and take them seriously, they respond to that. So digital is a big thing in, in government now potentially means doing a lot of things differently. Much of what is happening right now has been about digitising the existing processes. But as, as things go on, then we are going to be wanting to do things fundamentally differently in a way that you couldn't do with the, the old paper-based processes. And I think that means that there's going to be considerable need to change the way we think about things which, which is going to bring us into sort of complexity territory if you like and I'm just wondering how that's going to going to play out I mean hearing some good things from inside DWP the way they're approaching the sort of universal credit doing it in a in an incremental way and learning and I understand that really good things are happening in MOJ at the moment but I sense it's patchy yes I think that's right I think I mean, the people who are interested in digital technology and digital ways of working have been the sort of shock troops of transformation or, or improvement in government, and they've spread out across different government departments and have, have had and really helped to change the way people work. But but there are, often there's still sort of pockets of, of activity, and the big stuff still happens somewhere else and is done in traditional ways. Uh, so I think there's a long way to go. So that's so that's really interesting. I got that sense too that the the really big important stuff is done at an a extremely high altitude and then arrives on the ground and we've just got to cope with it. So why is that? What are the mechanisms that play there? Is it a political thing? Yeah, I think, I think the political process doesn't, doesn't help. And if people are in a hurry and they feel they've got to get something done before the parliament ends or some other deadline is, is reached, then, then there's a tendency to rush to solutions before you know what works. Uh, and I think that, that's a problem. And I think the, you know, the way that the funding works in government also causes problems because you, you're supposed to sort of say each comprehensive spending review you're supposed to say well here are the things we're going to do for the next three three years or even longer and you're supposed to predict into the future how much it's going to cost and how you know what the milestones are and all this sort of stuff and then you get some money from the treasury to do these things but really these business cases that you have to submit they're often not worth the paper they're written on 
because you can't predict the future in relation to many of these projects. I mean, if you're building infrastructure, perhaps you, you can predict more accurately. Well, yeah, infrastructure being clock-type things. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and then actually you have to plan quite a lot before you start pouring concrete and, and cutting steel. Whereas if you're developing software, it's quite adaptable. And if you're working with people, you better engage them and learn as you go because uh, you don't know what, what's going to work from the outset. But there does seem to be the sort of pervading industrial era mindset of big programs who've got something big and important to do, then you set it up as though you're going to build a bridge. There are many smart people all over government, yet these sort of things do tend to happen. Because I think the the, the systems that, that make them happen are pretty well established in government, in accounting officer rules and the accountability to parliament and, and the way the treasury works with, the, with government departments, all of those things, the way legislation is done as we've discussed, all of those things point you towards coming up, pretending you know what's going to happen in the future and, and that you've got the answer. Whereas I think there are lots of people in government who, on the digital side, but also on the, on the project side and the infrastructure and projects authority who've been thinking about these things, there is guidance now that says this is the way you should do what, what government describes as transformation, which by which I think they've got onto the cat-type problems or adaptive problems, adaptive challenges. So I think they, there are people who, who've, who've kind of thought about this, and but it hasn't been embedded across government. Going back to Ralph Stacey's dominant discourse about there being you know, managers who operate on a system, I mean, I still think that is the, the dominant way of thinking. We haven't got to the point of where... We're operating through interaction and communicating with people, accepting that we aren't actually going to be able to manage this thing. We have got to we'll get involved with it. We've got to create networks and we've just got to feel our way and, and learn about stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of people understand that from an intellectual point of view, but actually making it happen in this culture, I mean, particularly the, gov the government culture, because, you know, government is a complex adaptive system and um, there's nobody in charge of it. There's no one can say I want it to transform from, from A to B because complex adaptive systems don't work that way. And I think a lot of people can, can say, we just need to sort this out. It's ridiculous the way these people are behaving and so on. You know, we've heard a lot, a lot of that. But actually, they can't. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are five million public sector employees in the UK and there are, there are 400,000 civil servants. It's very large organisations. The Prime Minister theoretically in charge, but they can't, they can't instruct 400,000 people in detail, less, still less 5 million. So pass you know, legislation through Parliament, if they've got a decent majority, they can get something through, but that's not going to, you know, it has some influence, but it may not have the result that they, they like. Uh, there's often perverse effects. Let me, let me tell a story about perverse effects of rules. Oh, yes, so the, please. Yes, so the, please. Fr the French, the French cult culture ministry requires that to get money for school trips, French school children have to uh, go to two, at least two national museums uh, on any visit. The result of this is that lots of French school children go to Greenwich because there are lots of, lots of national museums in close proximity. So the French culture minister is subsidising French school children to go and learn about Trafalgar. <laughs> <laughs> Just because they have to have two visits. They have to do their visits. Otherwise, it's not, a, it's not an official school trip. Yeah, it's extraordinary. 
So, Daniel, I know that when you were at the um, Institute for Government, you were charged with looking outside of a government for other ways of doing things. And you talked to the folks at Amazon? Yes, I, I tried to learn about Amazon because it looked like a, a, an organisation that was very large, but still quite entrepreneurial. And it's interesting that, that Amazon is one of the few organisations where I think there are values that are seem to seem to be applied across the organisation. So... Jeff Bezos seems to have uh, sufficient command of the of the organisation that, that the values he's established actually are applied across the organisation, whereas most most organisations have a bunch of values that, that you know sit on some plastic next to the photocopier and get ignored by everybody. One of the things at Amazon is that you should never have a team that can't be fed by two pizzas. So if it gets bigger than two pizza team, then you've got a problem and you should shrink the team. And the idea is that if you keep teams small then they, they stay entrepreneurial, they stay focused on what they're trying to do and don't get ever more complex and harder to manage. And it means that I think I think Amazon seems to be a quite a challenging organisation to work in, but it's very entrepreneurial and people get on and do things because not, it's not an organisation where you have to go a long way up the hierarchy to get things done. It's much much more entrepreneurial than most, most organisations of that size. Doesn't mean Amazon gets everything right. I mean, there there are some problems that organisations need to have a coordinated position on. I think Amazon ended up paying quite a lot of a rather large tax fine in the EU because the the headquarters that they had in Luxembourg wasn't quite behaving in the way that the EU thought a headquarters should behave. Mm. Whereas other organisations take a bit more care about that. It strikes me that Amazon is an organisation that is very entrepreneurial but perhaps not all that well coordinated whereas other organizations are better coordinated but not very entrepreneurial you know i guess it's getting big it's having the same those big organization issues but the thing about amazon is that jeff bezos is very definitely in charge yes a lot of its success was based on the sort of platform idea that he had okay so we're building a shop but the shop software should be separate to our shop and the the technology that the shop software runs on, we need to make it in such a way that other shop software can run on it. So you've got this kind of layered model, which is kind of what the government as a platform thing was aiming at, but has become quite problematic. Yeah. And it's taken a long time because there's no one, you know, certainly GDS weren't in the position to be able to say, let's do it this way in the way that Jeff Bezos did. And things have been hard as a result. It's a different situation, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yes, but I think the platform idea is is relevant. And platform is about creating a bazaar, not a, not a cathedral, isn't it? It's a way of grappling with complexity, I think. Bizarre isn't a very government-y sort of way of going about <laughs> things, though, though, is it? It's much more cathedral. It's yes. much more... It, so the analogy is the same. The cathedral operates like the clock... And the bazaar is is like the cat. It's the it's the same thing. Where did that come from? The cathedral and the cat. It was something. Cathed do... Cathedral and bazaar. Yeah. Oh right, yeah. It's not what the did they? Where, where... <laughs> <laughs> I've got clocks and cats on yeah. my uh, on my brain. I can't um, remember. The yes, name it was something. It was something to do with software yeah. development. Yeah, it was the the Linux uh, <clears throat> folks and talking about the difference between Microsoft, what it was like to develop in the Microsoft environment, and what it was like to to operate in the Linux environment, and in order for Linux to work, you had to have this open, connected community of people who actually got on personally to, to make it work. And the reason it did work was because those conditions were created by Linus Torvalds. And this movement was able to condense out of thin air and actually be enormous. So 
what prospect for making the same kind of thing happen in government or indeed across the world? Well, I think the NHS is an interesting case. The NHS, I think, has gone through some pretty horrible technology experiments and wasted a lot of money in, a, in attempts to build cathedrals that um, involve getting GPs who are quite independent from government to adopt particular systems and so on. Whereas I think they are moving towards an approach, and Matt Hancock, I think, to his credit, gets this, that uh, where it's about standards and it's about open systems, not about the NHS building a cathedral. I'm just wondering how this is uh, this is going to pan out because I mean, you know the you know the, the NH- I've worked in the NHS. It's a difficult organisation to to get change to to, to happen in standard. Uh, you know to make to make IT work. Interoperability and standards are are really important. You've got to get people working together and and trusting each other to to make this happen. And when it comes down to it, I just wonder what will happen in the NHS. So what we've got now is something very different to the National Programme for IT. But are we genuinely embracing complexity principles, if you like? Will we be trying to build some communities of people who will be experimenting? Or are we going to be installing some big IT? But the, I mean, the NHS structurally is a sort of massive flow of money from top of the department to out, you know, like an upside down tree down the, down the branches to... Uh, hospitals and GPs, and that's not something that encourages a lot of innovation and risk-taking. I mean, another organisation that's that's interesting and, and has gone in the opposite direction on technology, I think, is Timpsons, which... Uh, so you looked at them while you, when you were at the Institute for Government? Yeah, well, I've, I've read about them, and I, I think what I understand is that I mean, I've had an experience with Timpsons as a customer as well, and it's generally a pretty good experience. Yeah, it is a good. Uh, yeah, me too. They're great, great um, firm. When they really fix good. your shoes or your f- screen of your phone, phone or, or your watch or, or whatever, whatever, yeah, whatever yeah, it yeah, is, yeah, yeah. It, um, and it's not you know. And I think they also have a good social mission. They employ a lot of people who've been in the criminal justice system and so on. But they operate in a very, very decentralised way, and there are two rules. One is look after your customers, and the other is put the money in the till. But there aren't lots of electronic systems to kind of check the the uh, you know what you're putting in the till, and in fact, several years ago they pulled out the the electronic cash registers that allowed uh, some uh, teenage spreadsheet scribbler to check from head office <laughs> what people were up to, and they they trust people to manage the shops and to decide what whether it's stocking umbrellas or or fixing people's phones or or you know, what the balance of stock they hold and so on. And because they trust people, people are much more motivated and they, they go out their way to help customers and so on. So I think, you know, I mean, it's been said that, that computers are a telescope for complexity and they, they certainly help you to understand complexity. And it's certainly the case that you can gather a lot of data and all sorts of interesting things have been done. But I also think technology can be a can be the enemy of a really decentralised approach because it creates the possibility of, of control from the centre uh, or the illusion yeah, of control. Yeah, it would be quite restricting. I mean, certainly my experience with Timsons has been fabulous. The guys um, who are in Newbury, where I live, are just so good. They're such nice people. You go in there, absolutely trust them. You're quite right. I hadn't noticed before, but they don't have any special till. I mean, they've got a card machine, but that's about it. And I, I trust them completely. Timpsons have someone who's very definitely in charge, though? Yes, they do. Yeah, that's true. And again, perhaps a bit like Amazon, they've, they've been able to establish these relatively simple rules and then kind of let people get on with it. But you have got to establish the rules. And, and the way you, just, you were describing Linux, you know, there, is, there was somebody there who had credibility with the, with the network and established the sort of, this is how we're going to do things here. 
So I'm I'm sure there are lessons in in these organisations for you know for government and other large organisations, but there's a lot of sort of complex system things. The the starting conditions make a, a massive difference, and actually we're starting with you know in certainly in government's case with a great big thing that's doing what it has to do. It's some lorry going down the motorway. Okay, so it's only doing 65, and we'd rather it was doing 70, but taking the engine out and and replacing it with a better one whilst you're doing that is really really hard and if you haven't got someone from the center with real control like bezos has and and what prospect is there for things to change and i guess that can only come from bottom-up things growing and turning into bigger things yes but or, or you know it happening in particular areas of the country or in areas where there are ministers or or other powerful people who are interested in in doing things in a different way. As I said, government is incredibly large, and there's always something interesting going on somewhere. Yeah. So this is so the, in the NHS, there's this chap Roy Lilly, who was a. Do you know Roy Lilly? No. Of course, he's he was a trust chief executive, and he's become I think the NHS's um, biggest critical friend, and he organises quite a lot of events. He's got. He's got this website called Fab- uh, Fabulous NHS Stuff, where what he's actually trying to do is shout about the things that are going really well and how successful are we at actually transplanting stuff. J- just because something works well in one place doesn't mean it will work well in another because the complexity theory theory says that if the starting conditions are not the same, then you might not be able to do that because you haven't got the right kind of, you know, the geography might be different, the, the political climate might be different, only sm- slightly different, slightly different bunch of people where it just actually can't work. So earlier on, D- Daniel and I were talking about the various sort of schools of thought about um, uh, managing change in organisations. And when we had a discussion about uh, the work of Ralph Stacey, who's um, he's a professor of... Uh, Professor of Complexity at Hertfordshire. And Ralph Stacey talks about the importance of human interaction and how everything generates from that. And he, I, I mean, I, I'm sure he absolutely believes that the, the stuff that came before, the cotter, the singer, all that stuff is not so relevant. He's asking us to give up something that, uh, that a lot of management has rested on for the last 20 years. So, I mean, what's your take on that? I really enjoyed reading um, Ralph's work and talking to him. So you've, so you've, met, you've met Ralph? Yes, indeed, and uh, found him very interesting and compelling. We've also had a few disagreements. Oh, that's interesting. So I think Ralph is absolutely right that where he, he talks about the way people create the environment that they're, they're operating in, and I encourage people to read his, read his work and that of his colleagues at Hertfordshire. But where we disagreed, I suppose, is on the analysis of the way the world is, not the way the world we'd want we'd want the world to be. For example, I think wherever you go in in the world and whichever organisation you talk about, there is always to some degree a hierarchy, and it may be that to make the organisation more effective, you've got to weaken the hierarchy or disrupt the hierarchy or get the hierarchy to work in a different way. But it's always there, and I I think it's if you don't think about the hierarchy and and the interplay of complexity with with the hierarchy, you're not going to get very far. So I think then there are other things like the hierarchy that are kind of legacies from from previous generations, laws and modes of operating and so on, that intrude quite heavily in organisations and the way we work. And if you ignore them, if it seems to me and, and believe that everything's about the interaction, 
uh, between people on a, uh, right now, then I think you lose quite a lot of what's going on inside organisations. It's important to have some kind of connection with the, the organisation about you know how it worked and the people that are there in order to be able to operate on it. I mean, I certainly I worked for a long time in a, in a particular organisation, got involved in lots of different sort of change type things um, and then reflecting it's I was able to get involved because I'd been involved and I knew people and there's something new came up I was able to have the conversation so in about I know 2012 ish I came out of that organization and started working elsewhere in government and actually I suddenly realized that I didn't have those connections didn't have the understanding of how these organizations were and actually it was really quite hard to operate I hadn't really appreciated how much my, how important my network was to my way of, of operating. Maybe I've been bound up by my complexity mindset. And it was therefore hard to do. Um, you can't just operate and start getting involved in changing things unless you've got some connection with it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, particularly if you're operating as a consultant. <laughs> I mean, if, you're, if you come into an organisation somewhere in the hierarchy, you've got a certain range of authority and so on. Whereas if you're if you're not in that position, you get things done by people respecting you, by your relationships or whatever. So I think it does depend where you're starting from in an organisation. But it's certainly harder to get things done, even if you're even if you're the boss. If if you don't know anybody, you don't know how the how the organisation works. Yeah, if you're in a clock type environment, you can you can look at the clock, you can understand understand how it works, and you can start operating with it quite quickly. But if you've been put into a cat, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. So, so does that mean we need people in government to stay longer in their organisations rather than moving around? I think that's probably right. And I think longer in their posts as well. I think we have a, a cult, culture of amateur, amateurs that uh, the idea that you can kind of throw somebody uh, into any role and they'll pick it up if they're clever enough. Um, Interchangeable parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that is that is an important issue. And, and I think generally when you're doing change in organizations there's an underappreciation of how long it takes to build networks and to, and to and to kind of develop relationships i mean this is one of the problems the nhs has had is this constant reorganization has just disrupted all of the institutions they abolish the regional layer and create these local bodies that have to kind of try and redesign the, the health services wow. locally they take a long time to bed down so it's this sort of organic metaphor isn't it in that you know you've got a tree planted somewhere okay we're going to move the trees and yeah. you've got to dig yeah. the things up and you've you can preserve the main roots and a, f a few of the smaller ones, but all those sort of kind of fibrous roots, the connections, the ones that are actually important for getting water into the tree, you've got to put a spade through them. Because I do think we have a sort of mechanical metaphor for organisations. We don't think about these kind of things. And I think what you find in organisations is people use mechanical words. They use leverage and they use milestones yeah, absolutely. and they use you know um, all, all kinds of all kinds of kind of very tangible you know words to try and give the impression that they're going to be doing something measurable and understandable and you know under control whereas actually it ain't like that well it's funny so occasionally i get asked okay so tell me one thing that that i can do practically that will help me cope with complex situations and I know it's a little bit trite, but I, I, I say, well, try using organic words rather than mechanical words. Challenge yourselves in your, in your group to not say, let's build a team. 
my particular favorite I really hate is how are we going to scale this? If you said, how are we going to propagate this? You might, you, you know, it's an important metaphor because scaling implies um, you're actually going to get hands on and you're going to stretch it or, or whatever. Whereas propagate means that you've got to, uh, how are you going to transfer it? How are you going to encourage the same thing to grow somewhere else? And you, and, and you do different things as a result. And actually I say this and, you know, some people nod and I'm absolutely sure that a lot of people think I'm just completely barking. And uh, <laughs> they want to send you off to your garden. <laughs> well, well, uh, so ultimately, well, for, you know, for me, so I'm, I make my money from helping people to change things. And if I've got a bunch of lunatic ideas, it's hard to get hired. It's not like being in a big consultancy. Yes, and I think it's not only the organic language that helps. I think I mean, the other problem you see is people talking uh, in ways that suggest that they've got absolute control and, and certainty. So the I, I, particular bugbear of mine is best practice. People who sort of say, well, we've, we've identified the one true solution and all we need to do is get everybody to adopt this. Uh, and that's, I don't think it's usually true in very technical subjects, uh, but it's certainly not true in uh, less technical subjects, adaptive situations. Uh, there are always many, many ways of doing things. I'm not sure if you're talking about the same thing, but this is uh, one of the things that David Snowden talks about in his Kneffin model. It, you know, it's got the, the obvious, complicated, complex and chaotic. And he talks about the kind of approaches you take in each of the boxes or each of the domains. And so best practice is the, is, is the practice that's appropriate to the obvious box. In the complicated box, he talks about good practice. And in the complex box, he talks about novel practice. And, and, he, and he means a, the, the, there's a whole lot of meaning attached to each of those words. But, but so, so I suppose what, what, what you're saying is, OK, we've got a really complex situation. How do we turn it into something obvious? You can categorise the problem, apply best, the best practice to that, and then get on and do it. And that's the big problem that we have. Yeah, because most things aren't in that situation. No. I mean, so so the, the example that Heifetz uses of the difference between an adaptive and a technical challenge is he describes a, a heart operation on a patient as a, as a technical challenge, uh, relatively predictable, what's, what the outcome's going to be, relatively clear what it is you need to do, perhaps that you could even talk about best practice in relation to heart surgery, whereas trying to get a patient to change their lifestyle, stop smoking and drinking so much, you know, do a bit of exercise, that sort of thing, that's an adaptive challenge. You don't know... Who the, who the most important person in the process might be. Uh, you don't know what the path's going to be. There might be some breakdowns in relationships before people agree mm. that they maybe should change their lifestyle. But, but I mean, if you think about the history of heart operations, I imagine the first person who did, a, did, a, did a, you know, an open heart surgery, that was very much an adaptive problem um, because they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but, but that's the kind of... That's separate to the kind of behavioural issues. That so that they had a, a essentially a technical problem. Of how do we change a heart? But because they were they didn't understand the whole system, you had to treat it as a complex system, and you had to do some experiments to make that work. But the but the thing about this heart surgery thing is that ironically that if you'd got the adaptive change thing working, you wouldn't actually need to change the heart in a lot of cases because the behaviour of the people, the exercise, you know all that. We know all about yeah, that. Yeah. About that. So yeah. There's a sort of a deep irony to it. There is, there is, yeah. And, and, but and, but I, also, I also think that you know, no problem is purely technical or no problem is purely adaptive. There are always features of each in, in, any, in any situation. 
And in, in heart surgery, you know, we know that the way the team is working and the relationships between the team that's doing the heart surgery has a big impact on the chances of success of the operation. So you can have a checklist that says this is this is what you've got to do. You know, you've got to snip here or whatever. I'm, not, I'm clearly not a heart surgeon, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, you know the relationships in the room between the people helping with the operation are incredibly important. And so you know even the thing that that you know Heifetz describes as being a technical problem is really you know there is an adaptive element to it. Yeah. So was it an American surgeon called Atul Grande? Yes. Did, so um, the first thing I heard about him was that from him was this sort of checklists thing. And uh, that all kind of made sense to me to, you know, you're in a complicated situation and um, lots of people have done this thing before. And so it makes absolute sense to to, to work with the sort of checklist and, and all that, all those sort of vestiges of complicated type things. And then I heard him talking on a probably a podcast a few weeks ago about the issues that they're having about actually making improvements in in surgical teams and actually a lot of it is about them getting together and being honest with each other you know he absolutely gets the complexity thing and he was talking about the importance of building the relationships and the trust so that you can have those conversations because you can't have the conversations about something that's going wrong if you don't trust the other person he was talking about the same problem from from two different perspectives. There's the clock type challenge of, of making this thing work, but there's the cat challenge of creating a team that will uh, will challenge itself. And that's why the the artwork for the podcast has got a picture of a clock with a cat behind it, because they're almost always there. Which is why best practice is always a bit bit of a misnomer for me. I mean. There are always other things going on in any circumstance. And the human relationship <laughs> side is. is well, it's really hard for all of us, isn't it? Because human beings are fundamentally awkward and <laughs> irrational and, and all those things. Um, and how do you create teams that can interact in that kind of way? Sometimes you're lucky, I guess. You, you end up with a bunch of folks who come together and for whatever reason gel and they just take off. But actually the challenges in all those other teams that kind of, how do, how do you help make progress in teams that aren't fantastic? Yeah, and I, I think saying um, you need to develop trust between <laughs> between all of you doesn't necessarily help. I, th I think there is something to be done. To... No, exactly. I mean, it's really it's a really <coughs> hard thing to do. I mean, you can you can you can say it, and you can have as many workshops about improving trust and all the rest of it. But um, uh, unless it's really there and people can genuinely trust a visceral level, then it just isn't going to work. Yeah. And I think one of, one of the things I found interviewing politicians as part of the Ministers Reflect uh, series interesting was... So the Ministers Reflect was... Was a, was a series of interviews with former ministers to ask them how to be a good minister. And um, so as part of this, I interviewed Nick Clegg, and I found one of the interesting things he said was that he, as Deputy Prime Minister, found it quite easy to challenge David Cameron. David Cameron found it quite easy to challenge Nick Clegg. But it was very hard to challenge people inside your own party. And that was the problem Nick Clegg had, and, and it was the problem that he saw David Cameron having. David Cameron found it very hard to challenge Theresa May as Home Secretary. He gave uh, too much uh, leeway to the Health Secretary with his uh, reforms of the, of the Health Service. And Nick Clegg found it hard to, ch to challenge his own, his own colleagues inside, the part, in, in, inside so his party. So and I think it's where you've got an ambiguous power relationship with people that, that isn't spoken about. 
So when somebody is older than you, but you're more senior than them, you know, or where they, you know, you've got the job that they thought thought they should get, you know, it's those kind of relationships in in the office that are most difficult to deal with, where there's some kind of competition going on that isn't acknowledged. Whereas I think if somebody's clearly on the other team, you can just say, well, you're on this team and I'm on that team, and we're going to work out how we can work together. And it's pretty clear where the, where the lines are. So I think it's where you've got that and amb- those ambiguous power relationships that things can get quite difficult. Oh, so that's a really interesting observation. So, Daniel, you were talking a little bit earlier about acting your way into a new way of thinking. So, um, you know, I've heard that phrase before. So what, what, what do you think that means? Well, when I'd be talking to ministers or, or senior officials in, in, in departments or other senior people around, uh, there's often this idea that what you need to do is come up with a good plan and get everybody else to kind of implement it, and that's the way to do change. Whereas it's often the case that the most important signal that senior people can send is for them to behave differently. And, and people watch leaders and people in senior positions, and they, they see the way they behave, and then they mimic them. And that's a pretty powerful instinct. Absolutely. Uh, so, 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 so the the people who are leading, uh, you know, senior people who are leading across government and in big organisations, they've all done the courses, a lot of them have done MBAs and you know, all that kind of stuff, where they will have heard all of this stuff about their own behaviour. Yet, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I've, I see it a lot where it's about the senior person thinking about how to change the other people. But why, how is it that they don't realise Am I generalising too much? Or maybe I am, I don't know. But how is it they don't realise that the, the behaviour change starts with them? I, th- I think it's uh, people, it, people believe things that suit them and, and it's easiest to project change onto other people and not to, not to think about how you can possibly change yourself. I mean, it's always, a, it's always change is uncertain and difficult. And, and so why would you, you know, changing yourself is hard. I mean, if you think about you've got some unhelpful habit trying to stop yourself doing it pretty challenging no you're quite right you're you're, so a, I think you're it's, absolutely it's, we are we are actually you know if my wife was here she would be saying well look Foden, you do this all of the time i told you about it two dozen times so you, you still keep doing that and i say well yeah yeah you know i did and and actually i'm just edit it out because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not high enough up my list of priorities to do something about that feels to me like one of the big big challenges the sort of leadership behaviors yeah i think behavior is what it's all about and if you're more senior in an organization then your behavior will be watched by lots of people and potentially has wide ramifications so behavior of, of more senior people is, is 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 very important and i think it's it's a process of starting to do small things differently and seeing what happens and taking it from there uh, rather than expecting a revolution overnight uh, because People don't stick to that, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, we've got to be out of the European Union by the 29th of March. It, yeah. And when you've got things like that going on, it, it's hard to be emergent. Yeah, yeah, although some things are going to emerge. <laughs> well, well, yeah, so the, the sort of unintended consequences of... If you, if you pull a big lever, it's going to have effects through the whole system. And a lot of them, you're not going to be able to... You're not going to be able to predict them in advance. And, you know, we're already seeing this. Happening. I thought you said we weren't going to talk about Brexit. No, well, I did. I, did. <laughs> I, I, I just couldn't help myself, but we should definitely stop.
Daniel, look, thank you very much indeed for taking the time. I've had a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Mark. Right, that's it. Uh, before we finish, if you found what you've heard useful, please do press that subscribe button. And I've got more interesting folks lined up for next year. And can I also give you the important job of spreading the word because it may help someone else. And right now, before you forget, please message, email, tweet, Slack or otherwise let your mates know about the clock and the cat. Thank you. Hope you listen again. Bye.